Okay, great. You can take your Bibles out and turn to the book of Haggai. Miss Allison did a great job of helping us get ready for this. Haggai is at the pretty much the end of your Old Testament there. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, that's kind of those books that you're looking for. Before we get rolling, I know a lot of you have asked, you know, at the end of our time last week, we prayed for Brother Jerry. Jerry is one of our overseers heritage, and he had his surgery on Monday, and he wants you to know that there were no complications, no problems. He and Miss Carol are very thankful for your prayers, so continue to pray for them as he recovers. He's at home now, and hopefully we will see him soon, um, but excited about that. Uh, God is a God that listens to us and hears our prayers. That's what he wants us to do. We are his children. And so I think that was a sweet time last week. Jerry felt like uh, he's so grateful to be part of the church family. He said that we'd be lifting him up like that. You ever uh, start something that you didn't finish? Like a diet or something maybe? Or, or you know, like one of those 10,000-piece puzzles? You know, you get it out, you're all excited, find the corners, start working on the edges, and six weeks later you've done nothing else, and every time you walk by it's staring at you, taunting you, hey, you, you had a plan, you know, you didn't do it. There's just times when life doesn't turn out the way you plan sometimes. I remember once I set out to try to run a marathon and I was training and then all of a sudden I got hit by a golf cart and I was done with that. I haven't run since. <laughs> Plan B. Back to the status quo. Well, that's where we find God's people in the book of Haggai when we get here. They had set out to, to start something and they didn't finish it. Uh, because of Israel's obedience, if you read throughout the Old Testament, they were constantly disobeying the God that had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. They even chose to sometimes worship other nations' gods. God's not having that, remember, that's like number one commandment. We don't do that. So anyways, in 586 B.C., the king of Babylon, you might remember this name. His name was King Nebuchadnezzar, bad guy. He finally came to Jerusalem, destroyed the walls, the temple, the city, and most of the people were taken into captivity into Babylon for decades. Now, eventually, Persia, which happens, defeated Babylon, okay? And the king of Persia at the time was named King Cyrus. He issues a decree for the people to go back to their nations. And so the Jew, about 43,000 of the Jews returned to Judah in order to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. You can read about all this, by the way, in the book of Ezra. So as you are studying Haggai this month in your own time, you might just add Ezra, the book of Ezra, to that as well. And that will kind of fit time-wise um, there together. The temple was very important. The temple was important because the temple is... God's dwelling place with his people. Throughout the Old Testament, God wanted his people to know he was with them. And so originally they were, had this tabernacle in the wilderness. They would pack it all up, move. When they got to the next place, they'd set it all up again because that was God's presence with them. It's very important to them. Eventually, King Solomon, yes, built the temple. And this is where the high priest could go in and meet with God on behalf of the people. This is an important thing. And so when the temple was destroyed, it's kind of like a slap in the face to God. And so he's telling the people, I want you to go back and rebuild it because it is that visual image, that picture to the world that I am with my people. 
So in the second year after they had gotten back, the foundation was already there, but their effort was stopped. They met opposition. The Samaritan people who lived north of Jerusalem, they frustrated the rebuilding efforts. Plus, they even hired lawyers to persuade the Persian authorities to stop supporting the work of the temple. This led to a period of great discouragement for those living in Jerusalem. Apathy set in because many of the hopes of the Jewish people were unfulfilled. The walls of the city were not repaired. The temple was not rebuilt. In fact, even famine came upon the land and the people were still under Persian control, so nothing was really going really good. There seemed to be no way to move forward and rebuild the temple. And by the time of Haggai's first prophecy, it had been nearly 20 years since they had returned to start this project. 20 years after they had returned and began the work, but now they had found themselves back into an uncomfortable status quo, working their tails off for a pretty meager existence, to be honest. It was a difficult time. You know, maybe they asked themselves, hey, why struggle to accomplish great things right now for God when these aren't, you know, obviously very great days? Better just kind of keep to myself, take care of me and my family, try to make our situation as good as possible, and, and we'll wait for a better time. You know, that's pretty reasonable, isn't it? Throughout the Bible, we find that there is a call and a reminder to place God first. The period... Following the return from exile was no exception. Haggai's call for the people to get their priorities in order and place God first by rebuilding his temple was of great importance. It was a sign of, of their priorities. It's kind of like our tithe, right? I mean, God doesn't need my 10%. He's got way more money than that. But me giving my 10%, it's a sign of my priorities, where my heart is at by putting him first. And for the people to return to their task, that was a sign of their priorities. I've titled this series, Living with Kingdom Perspective. Living with Kingdom Perspective. For the next four weeks, we're going to study the book of Haggai. And in case you didn't know, Kingdom Perspective is actually one of the six core values here at Heritage. So if you're part of the Heritage family, you should have already known that. Now, I'm not going to quiz you about the other five right now. But if you don't know them, you should go home and learn them because they are our core values, not because we like to put them on a sign or just say it from here, but because if we all incorporate these core values into our life, then they will be a core value for our church family. And kingdom perspective is one of those. And we define kingdom perspective as this, influencing the unchurched by planting seeds of faith and using our time abilities, and resources unselfishly. Did you hear that? Influencing the unchurched by planting seeds of faith and using our time, abilities, and resources unselfishly. With each of our core values, we've added a key question. And the key question for the core value of kingdom perspective is very simple and straightforward. It says this, does what I'm doing advance the kingdom of God? Pretty straightforward, right? Does what I'm doing in my everyday life advance the kingdom of God? So with kingdom perspective in mind, I want us to dive into the book of Haggai today. We're going to work our way all the way through chapter 1 today. We're going to divide it into three sections. And the first section is verses 1 through 6, and we find the Lord's challenge. The Lord's challenge. Read with me in verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the prophet Zerubbabel, who was the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. The Lord's challenge. The point is this. The people claim that there was no time or resources to rebuild and restore God's house. Yet they had put precisely that kind of time and resources into their own homes and their own lives. The rebuilding of God's temple, his house, had stopped, but falling back into the status quo or plan B for their lives, if you will, the Israelites turned their focus to their own homes and careers and their own lives. I feel like God's pretty patient because it's been almost 20 years since they had stopped the work on his house. Me and Brooke built the house once. And I feel like if it had been 20 years since they started that, I would have called and said, hey, you think maybe... You know, I might want to finish my house. You know, I think this is a common problem during difficult times in our lives as well, not just the Israelites. We find it easy to withdraw from serving God and others when things are difficult in our own life, saying that we're going to need all of our resources that we have, you know, just to take care of ourselves, right? Reasonable. Maybe we stop serving on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights because our schedules are kind of full. Maybe we do stop giving our tithe because... We're a little strapped financially. We better keep every penny we can. Thinking that we'll probably get back to doing those right things when it's just a little bit better, easier time, right? That's reasonable. One author said it this way. He said that the difficulty of life becomes an excuse for centering our existence on ourselves. We take the gifts and resources that we do have and hoard for ourselves the very things that might be used in the Lord's service and in service of others. But how does that work out for us? How did it work out for God's people? Look at verse 6. You have sown much, but what? Harvested little. You eat, but what? You are never having enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so just to put them into a bag with holes. It wasn't going so well for the people of God. They were not reaping in equal measure to how much they were sowing. They had food, but not enough to be full. They had drink, but not enough to throw a party. They had clothes, but not enough to keep out of the cold. It was like they were taking the money they would get from their paycheck and put it into a bag that had holes in it, just falling out. Nothing was there. Like, where did my money go? They were not experiencing the fullness of God's blessing, were they? Did God forget to bless them? Did he forget how? What they were experiencing, rather, was an inadequate, unfulfilling life in which every pleasure proved to be disappointingly incomplete. Does that sound familiar? You ever chased after things that you thought would fulfill you, finding out that they only left you empty? The call to Christianity is not a call to some comfortable way of life. I want you to know that. The call to Christianity is to come and die. Sometimes in the past 50 to 60 years, we've told people, all you got to do is say a prayer, come to Jesus, he'll make your life better. We forgot to tell them that they were supposed to, 
to die to themselves and pick up the life of Christ. The call to Christianity is to give up everything for the sake of his kingdom, not to build your own kingdom. But God's people had forgotten that here. And he tells them this. He says, what? Consider your ways. Think about what's going on. The problem didn't lay with God and his inability to bless them any longer. The problem lay with the people. They had put their own interests ahead of the Lord's, and now they were reaping the consequences for their messed up priorities. Simple as that. Have you ever felt like life was just racing by, like every year just gets faster and faster? You ever not quite reaching your goals, not quite being as fulfilled as you think you ought to be? This is what happens when we pursue our goals instead of the Lord's goals. This is living with kingdom perspective, but it's not God's kingdom we're trying to build, is it? It's our own. And when we live our life with these mixed up priorities, with us in first place and God in the second place, we end up with a life that is without God's full abundant blessing. And that's where the people of Israel were at this time. That's where some of us are today as you come in here. And the answer for them back then is the same answer for us. Very simple and straightforward. It's time to lay down our excuses about why we aren't serving the Lord with our lives and reorder our priorities. God says, consider your ways. The Lord's challenge. Next, we read about the Lord's command. What does he want to tell them to do then? Verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He says it a second time. Go up to the hills, bring the wood, and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. I am making it difficult for everything, because your priorities are out of whack. God says the reason you're struggling is because I have turned off the faucet of blessing. God gives this command, get up, get what you need, and get back to building my house. Why? I love this. That I may be glorified. Whatever command comes from God, no matter where we are in history, no matter what stage of life you are, whether it's back back here in the Bible or or today, whatever command comes from God, the, the outcome of obedience to God is that he is glorified. I think oftentimes we think we better obey God because we will receive a blessing. When we obey God, we receive blessings. But the outcome that always comes from obeying God's command is that he is glorified. He is glorified. We obey God so that he can be glorified. I think this is very difficult when Christianity and America comes together. Because in America, we are very, very gifted at honoring ourselves. Making sure we are first in priority list. Glorifying ourselves. We don't glorify other people. We don't honor other people really very much. I mean, in other places in the world, they'll bow, you know, to certain people. We don't bow to people. We might vote for people or put a sign with their name in our yard or we'll cheer for people or buy their jersey, but we're going to stop short of glorifying other people. We glorify us. But we obey God so that he can be glorified. And check it, God's not even apologizing for wanting to be the one who receives the glory. He's the only one that deserves the glory. 
He says, get up there, get off your butt, go build my house. Why? So that I can be glorified. God says, I'm the one that withheld the dew from you. I'm the one who called for the drought. Why? Because your priorities are all jacked up. Until their priorities are reordered and God's house was rebuilt, the people could not expect to see more blessing in their own lives and in their own land. Church family, if you're not living a life full of blessing today, there's a good chance it's because the blesser is withholding those blessings because you've put something else in the first place in the order of your priorities. If you feel like you're not receiving the full and abundant life that you thought you were going to have in Jesus, you might want to start jotting down a list of your priorities and see where God is on that list. You've got to be honest with yourself. Now, I want to be very clear today. I'm not talking about some sort of prosperity gospel. You know, like you're not a millionaire because you didn't give enough money to Jesus or something like that. I'm talking about John 10, 10 stuff where Jesus says that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and what? Have it abundantly to the full. That's the life that Jesus gives, a life of covenant relationship to God, creator God, the one true God. You get that, a life full of blessing from him. What else would we want? And that kind of life comes when we obey his commands. His commands are the commands, by the way, that help build his kingdom. The commands that God gives us in his word are the commands that are best for us. Best for us because he knows us best, because he created us. He gives us commands. He's not just a mean God telling you what to do and what not to do because he wants to be in charge. He's a God that loves you and created you, knows what's best for you, and his commands are those that will be best for you and that will best build his kingdom for his glory. And when we obey God's commands, that is when we are living with kingdom perspective and we will receive his full blessing, the Lord's commands. Now we turn to the third section and we find the people's response and the Lord's blessing. The people's response and the Lord's blessing. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, I want you to underline very hard the next word, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. What was the Lord's message to them? What was his blessing? I am with you, declares the Lord. He reminded them of the promise, didn't he? I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. I love this. Their response is immediate obedience. It had been almost 20 years since they had started and stopped the project. And now he's very, uh, he's very clear about exactly what day of the month it was. It only took about 20 days before they get back to work after hearing the, God's message from his prophet Haggai. Immediate obedience. So many times in the Old Testament, people of God, they didn't want to hear from the prophet of God. And they didn't listen to the prophet of God. In fact, being a prophet of God, you would think that's a really cool office. I'd like to have that job. No, you wouldn't. The people were not very kind to the prophets of God. 
I mean, here's the prophet of God having to tell the message of the God to the people of God. And it was usually, hey, you're not doing a very good job about being the people of God. You need to do better. And the people didn't always want to hear that message. But in Haggai, they heard God's word and they obeyed God's word. This is how it should always happen, in my opinion, when we hear from the Lord. As we listen carefully to the scriptures and we consider our ways, we will always find a place in our heart somewhere that doesn't line up perfectly with God's holy standard, won't we? Isn't that true? Or can anyone here today honestly say that you have always sought first the kingdom of God and chased after his righteousness with your whole heart? Can anyone say that on a daily basis? You've always done that? Of course not. That's why God's word is so important to us. That's what God's word does for us. We need God's word. We need to read God's word. We need to allow God's word to convict us of the sin that is in our lives. And we need to obey God's word so that we become more and more conformed to the image of God's son, Jesus. That is salvation. Do you read God's word like that? Or do you just read God's word to check it and say, yeah, I did my reading for the day? Every day when you finish reading your Bible, I would say that you ought to ask yourself some questions. And let me give you one important question you should always read every time you read your Bible. You should always ask yourself this. Based on what I just read, what changes or commitments do I need to make in my life? You should write that down. Every single time you read the Bible, you should ask yourself that. Based on what I just read, what changes or commitments do I need to make in my life? Hear God's word and then obey God's word. Verse 12 says that the people also, not only did they obey it, they feared the Lord. These people knew what happened to their relatives when their relatives did not obey God's word, right? They ended up exiles in a foreign country. That is a pretty bad thing. Most of them didn't survive. I sometimes feel like if our sin had more immediate and really hard consequences, we would be way quicker to ask for forgiveness and move toward obedience again, right? They knew the Bible says that this was the remnant of the people who made it back to Jerusalem. This is the small group of people that actually survived God's judgment in Babylon. They feared God because they knew he was a true God. And as this group heard God's voice, they turned their hearts back to him and obeyed. That's the people's response. And the Lord's blessing is this. It's his reminder of his promise. He says, I am with you. I am with you. That's the promise to Isaac, isn't it? That's the promise to David. God is with his people. God is not up in heaven searching the world, waiting for you to mess up so he can throw lightning bolts at you. He is not that kind of mean God. He is a loving father who confronts us with our sin, yes, so that he can forgive us and show us mercy when we repent and turn back to him and obey. He is a loving God. He is the loving father with outstretched arms waiting for the prodigal child to return home. That's our God, the father. Our job is to repent and obey. And it's important that we don't forget that last part, the obey part. It's not enough for us to just feel bad about our sin, about our rejection of God, about our rebellion toward God. There should be sorrow, yes, over our sin, but that sorrow should lead us to turn back to him and obey his commands. Do you see how that works? We should not just say, well, I'm sorry, I'm just not very good at that part of my life. I guess it will always be that way. No, 
That sorrow ought to lead us to true repentance, to turn back, face him, receive his blessing of mercy and grace, forgiveness of sin, and move toward obedience in him to his commands. That kind of life brings glory to God and blessing to us. People must glorify God. I think if, it, if you take anything out of what I've said today, take this one sentence. People must glorify God. That's the main idea. And you say to me, well, Brian, I don't use the word glorify a whole lot in my normal daily routine. What does that even look like that I would glorify God in all my life? I have a couple of pictures I want to show you. And I'm not a good drawer or a very good handwriter. But I drew this on the whiteboard and just took a picture of it. And I think oftentimes this is how we see our life. With me at the center and all these different aspects of my life that I've got going on. God, religion, relationship, Jesus, whatever you want to put in there. Friends, family, work, hobbies, finances, health. There's lots of things that go on in your life. And when you look at your life like this, when you show up on a Sunday morning like where we are today, and we sing songs and reread God's word, we are actively participating in this God section, this God aspect of our life. And when you sit around the dinner table with your family and you pray before you eat, at that moment you are actively participating in the God aspect of your life. And if you take out your Bible or devotional during the week, you've moved into that aspect of your life again. But church family, let me tell you, if that's the way you see your life, you are not glorifying God with your whole life. You have some sort of life backpack on and you take God out when you need him and you put him back when you're done with him. My opinion is that it ought to look more like this picture. You should remove that sphere and the middle sphere should be Christ in me. Because when you become a Christian, it changes everything. Christ now takes his dwelling place no longer in the wilderness tabernacle, no longer in the temple. The Lord dwells in me. And because of that, it drastically affects every aspect of my life. My friendships, how I husband, how I father, my work ethic at my job, how I spend my time and my money my health, everything is affected, every aspect of my life, because of Christ in me. That's how I glorify him on a daily basis in all of my life, because he is actively working through me in every part of my life. And I'm putting him first. I'm not putting him on a list of things. He is at the top of all things in my life. And that's how we glorify him. Christ in me. Yes, God wants us to have a zeal for his house, for his kingdom. In the Old Testament, the temple was God's dwelling place with his people, and that's why it was so important for them to rebuild it. It was that visual to everyone, to the nations, that God does fulfill his promises. I am with you. And in the New Testament, Jesus is that fulfillment. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Yeah? And Jesus had a zeal for God's house. Do you remember the story in John 2? When Jesus goes into the temple with a whip and he clears out all the money changers and all the people that were trying to make a profit off the sacrificial system, his disciples remembered the verse from the Psalms that said, zeal for your house will consume me. It was one of those moments when the disciples realized again who Jesus was. Zeal for your house will consume me. It wasn't really that hard for Jesus to go in and clean up the temple. It would, however, be a much harder task for Jesus to come in and clean up his people 
so that they could live in the house of the Lord forever. Because the house of the Lord could not have sin. That task would require God the Father to take the whip himself and turn it on his son, Jesus. You see, on the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sin, for your sin, for my sin, for putting ourselves in our house before God and his house. On the cross, Jesus took the judgment that we deserved, paid for. And now the zeal Jesus housed is for his father's house, the righteousness that Jesus lived with while he was here on earth, it gets imputed or laid upon us. That is the miracle of the cross. It does something that we never could have done for ourselves, no matter how long we tried, no matter how much effort we put forth. We get Jesus' zeal for his father's house. We get Jesus' righteousness in place of our sin. And that can never take second place in our lives. To give him glory, he must be first every day, every week, every month, every year of our lives. The cross has to be centered. And today, as we finish... As a family, we are going to celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper, remembering Christ's act on the cross and what that did for our lives. You know, participating in the Lord's Supper is reserved for those who have chosen to follow Christ. I don't know if you know that or not. Those who are part of God's family. For those of you who are here today that have not made the decision yet to follow Christ, to be baptized in a tub like this or somewhere with water, I guess, and to join God's family, the only question I have for you is why have you not made that decision yet? What is it that's keeping you from making this most important decision to join God's family? If that's you, you certainly don't have to leave or anything while we do this, but I would invite you to watch during this very special time because what happens here during communion, during the Lord's Supper, is very special. The Scriptures encourage us to look in a number of directions as we share the Lord's Supper. First, we look back. We look back with gratitude to Jesus and his death on the cross. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 24 says that when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we look back at what Jesus did for us when we do the Lord's Supper. Next, we are to look around at the body of believers in the room with us whom we're going to share this supper. Go ahead. You can look around because this is your family. It's something that we do as we come together. It's significant that we share this meal as a community. Sharing the one bread together is a sign of our fundamental unity. No matter the differences that we walk in with, the thing that unifies us is our relationship to Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul also tells us to look inward, to examine ourselves. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight 28, and 29, he says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You see, it is possible to come to the Lord's table without repenting of sin. And so to participate in it unworthily. So looking inwardly, we examine ourselves. We repent of our sins because we know that if we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us us from all unrighteousness. 
We also look up to heaven where the risen and ascended Christ intercedes for us as our great high priest. I love Hebrews 4 that says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And finally, we look forward. We look forward to the day that we will see Jesus again when he returns. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says that for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The celebration of the supper serves as a proclamation of Jesus' death, which anticipates his return. That's why we celebrate. So now I want you to take out this uh, prepackaged element today. This is, I think, the last time we're going to have to do this for a while like this. If you're having a hard time with it, find someone to help you. And take that bread. And I'll read again. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 24, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul continues in verse 25. He says, In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we live our lives with our communion to God the Father as first place, we live our lives to glorify him on a daily basis. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the sacrifice of your son Jesus on the cross to pay our debt of sin. Father, we apologize. We ask, we repent, we ask for forgiveness of all the times that we put something else in first place in our priorities other than you. Convict us of that sin. Show us what needs to be changed Stir up our hearts to obedience to you, Lord, the way that you did for your people in, in the book of Haggai. Stir us up, Father, to want to live our lives for you, glorifying you on a daily basis. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us on the cross and what that means to us. Help us to keep that center. We thank you, Spirit, for choosing to have your dwelling place in our heart. Sanctify us, clean us, make us more like Jesus. We want to live to glorify and honor you, for you are the only one that deserves it. We love you, Lord. Thank you. Amen.